the move fast and break things mantra does not work in healthcare. And, and we're very clear about that. You know, the mantra that we prefer in healthcare is move fast and fix things. Welcome to Hymnscast. I'm Laura Lovett. I'm the managing editor for Mobi Health News. Today, we are so lucky to have on two guests. We have Dr. Sadi Kumar, who is a partner at GSR Ventures, and we have Dr. Justin Norton, who is also a partner at GSR Ventures. Thanks so much for coming on. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, I've heard a lot about what your work, the work that you're doing and what companies you're investing in. And I know you work a lot with AI. I would love to hear about what trends are you hearing with AI in healthcare and what keeps coming up for you? Sure. So with AI in healthcare, this is just a real focus on where we're looking and investing in companies, really trying to transform what is possible in healthcare today. Uh, and so when we think about AI in healthcare, uh, we think about what are things that aren't delivering incremental improvements over the status quo, but what are things that are really delivering two, three, 10, if not 100x improvements over what's possible today. So certain companies, things you can think about medical imaging is certainly a space we're seeing AI. We're seeing a lot with natural language processing, uh, with chat, and also searching and understanding medical records better. And then we're also seeing things starting to understand, uh, you know, getting around risk and what's possible, what is really, what are we really able to deliver with AI and where are we falling a little bit short? So happy to dive deeper into all those sections, but AI and healthcare is something, you know, we're really focused on here at GSR Ventures. Yeah. And I'd love to actually, yeah, let's dive into some of those questions, but you know, what are some of the low hanging fruit for AI? Is it automation? What, what's, what's kind of the low hanging fruit? And then maybe what's harder? What are those, those questions that maybe AI can help, but maybe is a little bit more difficult? Absolutely. So one of the ways we think about AI solutions are what is the real goal? What are they trying to do? Are they trying to replace someone, a clinician or someone else completely from the loop, from interacting with that person? Or are they trying to augment and improve uh, one of those steps? And so we see it in a few different ways. Uh, if you're trying to completely replace someone in the loop, the bar for what you need to show with AI is very high in terms of the regulation, going through the FDA, understanding those clinical processes, the bar is very, very different and sometimes very, very challenging to completely remove someone from the situation. We can think about this actually a little bit in parallel to what's happening in the self-driving vehicle space, where completely removing the driver is very, very different from augmenting what someone's able to do on the road with lane assist or something like that. So that's one way we think about AI. And actually, we're really excited about solutions also that are moving people and able to deploy today. So can you deploy a solution today that completely replaces a doctor? No, it's not feasible. You need to figure out where that integrates and touches base with the system. But can you use AI systems to help with asynchronous messaging, with triage, with other earlier points in a care continuum? Yes, absolutely. And so when we think about AI, it's really just important to understand, okay, what is really the goal about what they're trying to do? And can this be implemented today and work towards getting better as they gather the data uh, and the feedback that they need to really build an exciting AI system? You know, mental health is hot across digital health. Do you see that as sort of a part of AI or, or what tools do you think are really coming to the surface for mental health? Sonny, you want to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we see AI, as Justin mentioned, as today being able to augment what physicians and other care providers can do. 
One example of this in our portfolio is a company called Health Rhythms, which uses artificial intelligence and other tools in order to use and find ways to track and diagnose the conditions that patients have. For example, if you can understand what a patient is going through, you may be able to predict their mental health conditions and actually be able to detect a mental health exacerbation before it even happens. And by doing so, devote resources to that individual. So if someone's at risk of having a mental health exacerbation, provide them with coaching, support, and other resources that limit the risk of that person having a more severe outbreak and therefore reduce their overall need for more intense resources in the future and therefore reduce the overall burden of care for that person and at the individual level, have them have a more uh, positive mental health experience and journey. That's how we see mental health being improved by artificial intelligence uh, from a grand picture. Just to be clear, we don't see artificial intelligence solving the entire journey. You know, there will still be a care provider that will come in and assist that person, but artificial intelligence can assist what that care provider can do today. You know, it's funny because I think we think of AI as like a robot coming in the room and really, um, you know, not personalized. But do you think it, in some ways it can do the opposite and, and sort of help to, to have more personalized care or, or help that patient relationship? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, Justin was mentioning this, but we're very clear that the doctor isn't going away. What we see AI doing is augmenting what the doctor can do. And in an ideal world, actually helping the doctor optimize what he or she can do so that they're practicing at the top of their license. One way that I see this um, really evolving is that instead of having your doctor spending their time on paperwork and sitting in front of the computer typing in a note, he or she can spend their time really connecting with the patient, taking care of the patient, spending the time uh, doing what they're uniquely trained to do as opposed to administrative work. And that's where we see the real promise of AI. If we can have more doctors, more nurses, more providers practicing at the very top of their training, that would optimize the entire healthcare system across the U.S., across the world. And that's where we see the real promise of this technology. Yeah, and sort of moving on from AI to clinical trials, recently um, GSR invested in Medable, which is a decentralized clinical trial platform. Can you talk to me a little bit about how digital health can impact the life sciences industry and, and maybe clinical trials in, in general? Absolutely. It's a space that we've been tracking for several years now. And one of the reasons why we were so excited about clinical trials and the role technology could have is if you look at how clinical trials have been administered, the reality is that up until very recently, most clinical trials have been more or less delivered the same way over the last few decades. The reason why is that due to a combination of regulatory issues and just general uh, hesitation to adopt technology, it's, there's challenges in ha changing how these clinical trials are administered. However, recently, there's been a push to incorporate technology in order to enhance efficiency, effectiveness, and meet patients where there are. One of the key beneficiaries of this has been decentralized clinical trials. And this is essentially allowing clinical trials to be administered where the patients are. So instead of requiring the patient to come to the clinical trial site 10, 20, 30 times a year in order to reach, uh, receive their care, allows the patient to receive their care from the benefit of their own home. Medable uses a technology platform in order to deliver this type of care. And what we've seen is that in the midst of COVID, they've seen a massive surge of growth, allowing the patients to receive 
their care from anywhere in the world. As a result, they've been able to benefit from such a tremendous surge of adoption as the pharmaceutical sponsors, as providers, and most importantly, as patients see the true value of this type of technology. And Medible and several other companies in the space have truly benefited from this new level of adoption that previously just really didn't exist. Something I'm really fascinated with is the sort of two different cultures coming together, right? You have a highly regulata- regulated uh, pharma companies, and then you have, you know, startups that, you know, startup mentality used to be move fast and break things. How do you as investors and kind of coaches to startups sort of advise them on, on coming together and sort of marrying those two? So it's a really funny uh, thing that you bring up. The move fast and break things mantra does not work in healthcare. And, and we're very clear about that. You know, the mantra that we prefer in healthcare is move fast and fix things. Because at the end of the day, you know, there isn't really a lot of tolerance for breaking things in healthcare. You know, absolutely, we, we are supporters of change. We're supportive of bringing in new things, but you can't break things in healthcare. You know, at the end of the day, we're here to heal people, to fix things. But You have to do so within the frameworks that exist. And as a result, there is a really high bar to clear, whether it's from a security perspective, from making sure that you're only doing things that benefit patients at the end of the day. Um, That also means that as a startup, you have to put in a lot of time, resources, uh, in order to make sure that what you're delivering works at the end of the day. This means that there is a higher bar to clear, but once you're able to clear that bar, that you have a, a better chance of being able to actually generate real value for the patients and the folks that you're trying to help. You know, a lot of things obviously have changed during the pandemic, but one of the things that's changed is the regulatory space. Is there anything going on in regulatory or anything happening in Washington that you're watching closely as investors of digital health? Sure, absolutely. So one of those changes that, you know, we're starting to see is the you know guidance on from CMMI on kind of what's coming, what's coming in for the years to come around Medicare, Medicaid, where are people looking at? Um, so this is this is something as you know we keep moving towards this shift to value um, towards you know equity now as a real focus point uh, for where we're going. Um, we see a few of these things as areas for okay, this is where DC is leaning, this is kind of the future and where we need our companies to play in. So specifically, one place that uh, we are particularly excited about companies starting to innovate around is uh, in Medicaid. You know, historically, this has been a very, very ignored sector within healthcare. And, you know, for clear reasons, you know, it doesn't pay as well. Reimbursement rates keep changing. You have to deal with states as well as national plans. Uh, Patients are harder to reach. Patients turn. Now, while all of those things are true, you know, still, you know, Medicaid is almost one in five Americans uh, you know, as part of Medicaid, almost one in six dollars in terms of our you know, huge healthcare spend. And again, you know, has been relatively ignored from, from the startup ecosystem and the investing ecosystem. And again, when you combine these, you know, AI technologies that we're talking about reaching patients where they are, we just see a huge uh, potential for kind of where uh, both DC is looking uh, for kind of more health equity and where real need is within our system and then opportunities for companies to really make a difference. Yeah, you know, you mentioned reimbursement. What are you seeing right now? There's still some some challenges in reimbursement. Say something like like digital therapeutics and, and now telehealth, obviously, there's a clearer line with. But could you talk to me about how you're thinking about digital health reimbursement? So, so maybe I'll go first and then Sunny, you can add on. But the digital therapeutics here is an area that we're super excited in. Again, this is a technology that can truly scale. Um, 
and, and reach every patient in need. Uh, unfortunately, there was a setback, you know, following with MSIT, you know, where people were looking with breakthrough designation, where you know, if you had this, you would be approved and, and have payment uh, if you made it through the FDA process. And there were some setbacks there. What initially were a few delays turned into kind of canceling this initially. And while people are hopeful something will come back, uh, reimbursement is a constant challenge for, for digital health companies. And, and on telehealth, you know, this has been a huge boon in terms of companies being able to grow in the pandemic. But, but most people think today, sadly, you know, these, these laws will kind of come down and there will be kind of again, state uh, guidelines and fences. Um, so it, it continues to be a challenge for digital health companies and figuring out the right way to navigate the regulatory landscape. Justin's absolutely right. In the short term, this will be a challenge. Uh, reimbursement is always a challenge. You know, there's a lot of competing interests that are trying to be balanced as we try and figure this out. The regulatory landscape is always complex. It takes time to get these things passed. Uh, the one thing that we are hopeful of, however, is that at the end of the day, the digital therapeutics are all about creating value and doing so in an efficient manner. And over a longer time scale, including the venture time scale, we are hopeful that the value will line up with reimbursement. Um, this may be challenging for some of the earlier stage startups, but over time, we are hopeful that reimbursement will match up with value so that as these digital therapeutics and others show that they can create meaningful value for their patients, the reimbursement will eventually catch up. Now, in the short term, there may still be pain and challenge, but over time, the reimbursement should catch up to the value that's being created. Yeah, and in that, we sort of touched on digital therapeutics. I would love to talk about where you think they're going. Um, what is the value in them? What's what's happening in the landscape right now? Sure, uh, I can take a first crack at that. So, you know, digital therapeutics has been such a hot topic for the past few years, you know, also catalyzed by some of the news around paratherapeutics, you know, going public, uh, you know, at an incredible valuation and really kind of being one of the leaders in the space. Uh, you know, fundamentally, digital therapeutics, I think, as Sunny mentioned, we see is, is a future of where, you know, digital health and where, where medicine is going. We know if we're able to reach patients where they are, are able to deliver, you know, behavioral interventions uh, on a continuous basis. We know we can deliver better healthcare outcomes, uh, and eventually those are going to be paid for and reimbursed. Exactly what is the pathway to that? You know, just getting FDA approval, is that enough? No. You're going to have to show the HEOR data. You're going to have to show the value. You're going to have to convince physicians, a notoriously difficult group, to, to reach an influence. But with all that said, I think as Sunny mentioned, if you kind of uh, zoom out, this is the future of where things are going. Are they going to be augmentations on top of traditional therapeutics? Probably. Are there going to be some standalone therapies for digital therapeutics? Absolutely. Will some of them be paired with coaches and other kind of wellness uh, people? Absolutely. Um, but we're very, very bullish on the space. Kind of when you zoom out, you know, this is where we think you know, medicine is going. Yeah. The one other thing I'll add to that is there are so many areas today where we just, as physicians, don't have good treatment options, where our currently available therapeutics just don't do a good job. And I think that's where we see a real opportunity for digital therapeutics to, to come in and fill the gap. You know, one company that we work uh, with is a company called Limbix in the adolescent mental health space. And the reality is today for adolescents suffering from anxiety and depression, we don't have good options. You know, we, we don't want to treat them with uh, medications that have really unfortunate side effects for this population. So if we can come up with digital therapeutics that are much better suited for this population, we believe that these will be much more effective therapeutics with a much better 
profile for this population. And those are the types of spaces that we believe digital therapeutics have the uh, best likelihood of having an impact. And something I want to come back to, I know Justin mentioned it a little bit, but was health equity. You know, are you seeing more companies looking at this question? And, you know, what is sort of out there in this landscape where startups can sort of address some of those questions? Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, over the past few years, in terms of the words and things that are coming out from startups and at conferences, you know, social determinants of health is something that is becoming more mainstream, which is, I think, a fantastic change. And, and what does this really mean? You know, as much as, you know, Sunny and I would like to think as physicians, we control so much of the patient outcome in terms of health. You know, the truth is actual clinical care is a small fraction of that. And, you know, the situation someone finds himself in, uh, the barriers to access to care, food, uh, insecurity, income, et cetera, is such a bigger part of actually the complete healthcare picture. And so as we have more and more people shifted towards value, it becomes that much more important and systems are finally aligned with kind of treating these social determinants of health when, when they're on the hook for the whole cost of care. And so we are seeing startups, we are seeing more people today um, come and, and talk about how they can reach patients, whether it's access to rides and getting people to the clinic, it's access to food and figuring out how to deliver, you know, food as, as medicine. We're starting to see kind of many other, or, you know, even uh, figuring out how to finance um, some of the healthcare costs. We're starting to see solutions really starting to think a little bit more outside the box of just delivering traditional care, which we think will have tremendous value uh, going forward for our whole system. Yeah, and actually that kind of touches on another point, which is value-based care. Uh, do you think value-based care is going to also change the landscape? We certainly hope so. Uh, we, we believe that the incentive alignment with value-based care is so much stronger and, and should really push forward uh, an alignment with equity, with equality, with access that really we need across you know, so many different uh, value propositions. One of the challenges is getting folks to switch to a value-based care from fee-for-service is very, very challenging. And we've seen you know, across many different systems that have tried to make that switch, it tends to be very challenging. So uh, finding what sort of incentive structure will allow for a transition to occur in some fashion, uh, hopefully smoothly, but in some fashion is going to be one of the biggest challenges I think uh, the country will face as a whole. Um, certainly there are value-based systems that already exist today to some degree that work quite well, but making a transition from a fee-for-service to a value-based system is one that we have not seen done very well at scale. And I think that's one challenge that we'll have to find some way to overcome. I'd love to ask you as investors, there's a lot more money being poured into digital health. Um, you know, is this a bubble or what makes it not a bubble? Yeah, um, there's certainly a lot of excitement and exuberance in the system, and, and there's no doubt about that. Uh, the reasons why we are optimistic that there's real value being created here is if you actually look at what's under driving that uh, additional capital into the system, is that if the companies themselves are actually generating real value today, if you look at the companies themselves that are raising this money, including like Medible, they're generating real revenue, real value. The actual underlying value proposition behind these companies is, is real. You know, at the end of the day, a company like Medible is driving additional access to clinical trials. It's speeding up the way these trials are done. It's making therapies come to market faster than ever before possible. So even while there's more money flowing into the sector than was ever happened ever before, at the end of the day, it's driven by real results, real revenue, and real value being created. So we're still very optimistic that you know the amount of value being created here 
justifies the amount of dollars being coming into the sector. I want to open up the floor a little bit. What are you excited about next in healthcare and specifically digital health? I think uh, at the end of the day, what we're most excited about is how can you generate huge efficiencies in how you can deliver care. You know, one thing that we've seen is telemedicine itself is a incredible, incredible boon when it comes to improving access. You know, one core value proposition is for a patient. Instead of having to drive to the physician's office, you now can uh, speak to your physician over something like this, a, a Zoom call or a, a video call where you now cut down the commute time significantly. And for many patients, that's incredibly valuable. But from a systems level, the amount of time the physician and the care team is spending with you is actually about the same. So from a societal perspective, the overall healthcare spend on a telemedicine visit is actually roughly the same as an as a in-person visit. As a result, the total medical spend on a telemedicine visit versus in-person visit, not too different other than maybe some efficiencies uh, when it comes to getting rid of that big building that you might otherwise have. One thing that gets us really excited is how can you drive significant efficiencies there? So one model is what's the next version of telemedicine? So something like asynchronous telemedicine. One of the companies that we've invested in this space is a company called Alpha Medical, which uses asynchronous telemedicine to solve uh, all of a woman's primary care needs. And by doing so through telemedicine, they can reduce the cost of care by about five or six X. So instead of costing 100 or $150 for a primary care or urgent care visit, they can now deliver the same quality of care, meet all of the needs of a woman, but deliver that for $15 without insurance and bring the cost, the time that a physician needs to spend with a patient from 12 to 15 minutes a visit down to just a minute or two and pass on all those cost savings directly to the patient. So we believe that if you can scale that up and do that you know, across the entire health system, those types of savings become incredibly, incredibly valuable across the entire health system. And to your point on AI, if you can bring in an artificial intelligence system, still keeping a human in the loop, just to be clear, just keeping the physician involved, but driving an additional 3X or 5X efficiency you could potentially even deliver that care for free. Uh, and that would be an, an another entire game changer in how care is delivered throughout the country. Just uh, adding on to, to that last point, I think one of the things that you know really drives both Sonny and I kind of as physicians who've chosen to kind of step back from the patient care side is I think there's a real potential when you zoom out over the next three, five, 10 years to deliver kind of a level of care you know, that is standard to everyone across the country. There's a, there's a real push that technology really can deliver a first pass towards primary care, towards prevention, towards access and understanding of certain conditions that we really have never seen in our healthcare system today. Yes, if you have the right access to physicians, you can get that care. But with technology, we really see a democratization of health knowledge that, you know, we really think can improve our healthcare system. And so when you zoom out, it's technologies like that. It's improving access. It's making it available 24-7. You know, it's delivering it, the care to people who previously wouldn't have had access to the doctors and that information. That really drives us and makes us motivated to work with companies today. Okay, my last question, and it's just becoming very cliche at this point, but I want to see everybody's perspective on, okay, COVID happened last year. What did we learn from it? And you know, have those lessons sort of gone ahead? Like, are we actually still implementing those? 
I can I can go first. I'll be I'll be brief. But fundamentally, COVID pushed pushed us ahead. You know, five to ten years, especially from a cultural perspective, getting physicians and patients to change is extremely difficult. And we've proven now. Everyone has seen. You know, digital health is here to stay. This is happening. And as you mentioned, many other investors and people are excited to jump in. Um, in terms of lessons, I think one of the things that maybe was forgotten a little bit is just remembering that you know business models and incentives are important. So we're starting to see the walls creep up around that. We're starting to see um, you know telemedicine rates drop at provider groups because you know if they're not in the clinic, they don't get to bill for as many auxiliary procedures. And so you know those are some of the things that are starting to creep back. That I think as we say, okay, now we have these digital tools. Let's again think about the incentives, not just a digital tool is better. You know, and that's how we're going to move forward from COVID here. Yeah. The one uh, lesson that I am constantly reminded of, but sometimes we forget, is just how adaptable people are. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when things were, uh, people were concerned about, you know, how much we would have to change and would people be able to respond to that. It's amazing looking now, you know, 18 months later, just how people were able to adapt to the changing circumstances. And of course, there were challenges associated with that. I don't want to downplay that in any way. But, you know, looking at the companies that we work with, how many of them were able to shift to a remote first model? How many of them were able to still work with their customers, sell to their customers, collaborate with them in a, in a world where they couldn't even actually go and visit them? It's incredible how these companies, these startups, even their customers were able to uh, change and adapt and, you know, take steps that to some degree were forced upon them because of, uh, you know, the necessities of the pandemic, but how effective they were in doing so when, when necessary. I think it just reminds us that uh, when we have to and when we're, you know, put, uh, put to the test, we become incredibly, incredibly adaptable. And I think it just gives us hope for when, uh, when the time comes, we're actually incredibly able to adapt to these circumstances. Great. Well, this was so interesting. We're out of time, but I feel like I learned a lot today and it was great to like sit down and sort of hash out some of these topics. It was truly our pleasure again, Laura. Thank you so much for having us here today. Thanks for having us, Laura. Okay, and for everyone out there, please make sure to check this out on Hymns Cast and also on Hymns TV. Thanks so much. <laughs>